Peace be upon you. One of the most discussed and slightly controversial verses of the Quran is Surah 3, verse 7. And it reads, He sent down to you the scripture containing straightforward verses, which constitute the essence of the scripture, as well as multiple meaning or allegorical verses. Those who harbor doubts in their hearts will pursue the multiple meaning verses to create confusion and to extricate a certain meaning. None knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge. They say, we believe in this. All of it comes from our Lord. Only those who possess intelligence will take heed. What this verse is informing us is that the majority of the Quran, the foundation of the Quran, is straightforward. It's easy to understand. It encompasses the entire message of God. But in addition to these verses, there are some that are multi-meaning, they're allegorical. Now, one interesting quirk of this verse is that within the verse, it's written in such a way that the verse itself is multi-meaning. Firstly, there is a debate regarding the exact meaning uh, of the word in Arabic that's translated as multi-meaning and allegorical. And this word is mutashabiyatun. And exactly which words or verses is this uh, uh, word signifying? Some say that these are the allegorical verses or the figurative verses where it talks, for instance, regarding God's hands. Other people say, no, no, it's not about those uh, verses. It's about the ones that use a word that have multi-meanings. And then there's others that say, no, all this constitutes the mutashabiyatun uh, verses. So even in this verse, there's this, this ambiguity. Now, secondly, the expression, none knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge, they say can be understood in one of two ways based on where you choose to place that period. So for instance, in one interpretation, you can say none knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge, period. And then they say, we believe in this. The other interpretation is no, no, no. You put the period after God. So you'd read it, none knows the true meaning thereof except God, period. And those well-founded in knowledge, they say. Grammatically, and per the rules of Tajweed, the recitation, both understandings are acceptable, except both versions cannot be correct because one understanding would negate the other. For instance, if I say none knows the true meaning thereof except God, period, that implies no other human being truly understands the verses of God in the Quran. So both interpretations can't be true, but linguistically, grammatically, and even by the rules of uh, uh, recitation, both uh, meanings can be extracted. My point in bringing this up is not to debate which understanding I believe is correct, but to highlight a much more significant lesson, which is this. In the verse of the Quran, where God is specifying that there's verses, there's words in the Quran that are figurative, they're multi-meaning, they're allegorical, that even in this verse that's discussing this topic, the same phenomenon can be found. This informs me that this is a much bigger lesson that we need to take heed to and not something that we just glance over lightly. It's not like we read this and I say, oh, okay, my interpretation of Mutashabiyatun is this and the period should go here, end the story. No, no. Why is it written this way? What are we to make of that? Now, interestingly, when we read much of the Quran, many critical verses on crucial subjects are intentionally written 
so that conflicting understandings can be justifiably taken. And there's so many of these examples in the Quran, I just want to focus on three to hammer home this point. One of the quintessential historical examples of this can be seen between what was considered the pivotal divide between Sunnis and Shias in their practice. And this had to do with the abolition and what they did regarding the fourth step. So in chapter 5, verse 6 of the Quran, it describes what we are to do during the abolition. It says, O you who believe, when you observe the contact per salat, you shall 1. Wash your faces. 2. Wash your arms to the elbows. 3. Wipe your heads. And 4. Your feet to the ankles. And I'm, I'm adding the numbers just for simplicity to understand that there's four steps. And the question is whether the verb to wipe or to wash should apply to the feet. Again, my point is not to make arguments regarding my understandings, but to highlight the bigger issue that God intentionally wrote the Quran where each side can feel justified in their interpretation. And he could have easily added verbiage to eliminate the confusion, but he knowingly chose not to. Beyond this, there are disputes as to when it mentions the elbows and the ankles, whether this is inclusive or exclusive. Meaning, do we wash the elbows when it says from your arms to the elbows and then from your uh, feet to the ankles, or do we stop short of them? Again, the verse could have clarified this, but it's intentionally written in such a way where it's open-ended. Another example that's very critical in the Muslim faith is what happened regarding the death of Jesus. In Surah 3, verse 55, it says, Thus God said, O Jesus, I am terminating your life, raising you to me, and ridding you of the disbelievers. I will exalt those who follow you above those who disbelieve till the day of resurrection. Then to me is the ultimate destiny of all of you. Then I will judge among you regarding your disputes. And sure enough, people have been disputing this verse and the meaning of it, for over a thousand years. And the reason is, is because in the Arabic, what's translated is uh, when it says, Thus God said, O Jesus, I am terminating your life. This word is mutawafika. And it can mean to take in full. So you can either read this as, O Jesus, I am terminating your life. Or, O Jesus, indeed I am one who takes in full. Meaning that he, he fulfilled his mission. And if you take the latter understanding, then it's implying that Jesus did not necessarily die, that God did not terminate his life. And from this, you get the whole theology around that Jesus wasn't killed, uh, that there was some imposter, that they made him look like Jesus. And it's just interesting, again, that there's other words in the Arabic language that could have solidified that, yes, Jesus was killed. But it intentionally uses this word that has these two meanings. And for the third example, again, this is something that's very critical. It's the punishment for theft. In Surah 5, verse 38, it says, The thief, male or female, you shall mark their hands as a punishment for their crime and to serve as an example from God. God is almighty, most wise. Now, the word that's used in the translation as mark, as in to mark one's hands, this word in Arabic is qatta'u. Qatta'u can either mean to sever, which is traditionally understood, or it can mean simply to cut, as in to mark. And we see this used in chapter 12, verse 31, in regards to Joseph and the women who cut their hands. 
Obviously, they didn't sever their hands. This is when she heard of their gossip, she invited them. So this is the governor's uh, wife uh, regarding the uh, ladies who were gossiping about her, prepared for them a comfortable place and gave each of them a knife. She then said to him, enter their room. When they saw him, they so admired him that they cut kata, their hands. They said, glory be to God. This is not a human being. This is an honorable angel. So in this verse where it's talking about the punishment, you know, it's written where you could say that, okay, it's either cut or it's sever. And we see most of the Muslim world understand this to being severing one's hand if they commit theft. So these three examples are not one-offs. There are countless examples in the Quran of matters like the ones mentioned. The question one has to ask is why? Why did God deliberately reveal the Quran that it can be interpreted in this way, where two people can read the verse and feel so confident in their interpretation? Historically, this is not a new question. This is not something I just dawned upon. You know, This is something that's been discussed since the revelation of the Quran. And typically, you can put people, as far as how they, they handle this, this uh, issue, in one of three camps. The first camp is that of traditionalists. You know, you could put Sunnis into this camp. The second I call the followers. You can put the Shias into this camp. And the last group I call the free thinkers, the rationalists. And these are the Mutazilites that you'll see them historically. Now, what was the approach of these three groups regarding these questions that came up? The traditionalists came in the view that if only they could figure out how the prophet and the earliest companions understood these matters, then they will have the right understanding. And so they went out, they poured through the Hadith corpus, they looked at everything, and they tried to extract what it is that they believed that the prophet or the companions did. Now, we have many episodes showing that this, this information, these Hadith, are completely unreliable. Now, that said, what's interesting is when they went down this path, ironically, they became more confused and divided than they were before. For example, the divide between understanding regarding the fourth step of evolution, if it's wipe your feet or wash your feet, when traditionalists gathered the Hadith, they came to the consensus that it's not four steps, right? It's about eight or 11 steps. And then it's wash your feet. But oh, if you have wool socks or shoes on, then it's wipe. So you can imagine how perplexing this is for the Shias who had four steps and then all of a sudden <laughs> they see that it's like, okay, well now the Sunnis who are arguing so vehemently that it's wash your feet, they added all these additional steps, including the nose, the ears, the mouth, uh, but then also this other caveat that, oh, if you're wearing shoes, you can just wipe over them. But it didn't stop there. They found other anomalies. There was a hadith that claimed that the prophet uh, would redo his ablution if he ate cooked food. And they limited this down. They said, okay, well, it can't be all cooked food. So they said, okay, it must be cooked meat. And then they, they said, okay, well, it must be certain meats that are cooked. And now they have this new prohibition that if you eat cooked meat, predominantly uh, that of camel, but not, you know, shoulder of lamb, uh, that you have to redo your ablution. And then other people said, oh, well, you know, we have a, a hadith that say that the prophet redid his ablution every time. And then other ones that say, no, he didn't. Right. So this just caused more confusion as when they went down this path, thinking that it was going to give them certainty. Uh, it just caused more and more uh, perplexity. Now, the other group that that, you know, I'm calling the followers that you can put the Shias into this camp. They had a different model. 
Yeah, they collected hadith, but they put less reliance on it. They believe that God has designated his imam, his leader, to dictate the terms to the congregation. So anything that their imam stated, irrespective if it went against logic, reason, the Quran, it didn't matter because they were God's mouthpiece to the people. So when the Shias use the term for someone, they say ayatollah, that literally means that they're the revelation of God. Whatever this individual states is no different than if God states it. So if the, the, the person decides that, hey, instead of salat, we're going to do jumping jacks, that's what the congregation is going to do. So that was their way around this, this open-endedness. Now, there was a third group, and these were the rationalists, most notably known as the Mutazilites. Some say that this group was not formed until after the beginning of the Abbasid dynasty in the year 750. But according to the book, The Four Imams by Muhammad Abu Zara, it reads, scholars disagree about when the Mutazilites first appeared. Some think that they began with the people of Ali, who withdrew from the politics and devoted themselves to the pursuit of knowledge when Al-Hassan, this is uh, Ali's son, surrendered the Caliphate to Mawiyah. At-Tarafi states in his book, The People of Sex and Innovations, they called themselves Mutazilites. When Al-Hassan offered his allegiance to Mawiyah, they withdrew, and the, the word for Mutazilites comes from the same Arabic, uh, Ittazala, which means to withdraw, from Al-Hassan, and they kept to their homes and mosques, saying, we are busy with knowledge and worship. So these people focused on knowledge and worship and most likely came around uh, around the time shortly after the death of Ali. So they've been in the, 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 the fold of Islam for a long time. Now what's interesting in the book, the Muslim theologian and the secretarian Malou, uh, it talks about the Mutazilites that one of them, they memorized the entire Quran, the Torah, the Gospels, and the Psalms in order to be able to debate the people of the Scripture. So these were not short on education. They were not short on scholarly work, but their focus was the Quran alone and then, in essence, the debating and that what's known as kalam. And it continues regarding the Mutazilites' theology on page uh, 303. It says, The Mutazilites avoided imitation and were averse to following others without investigation, examination, and comparison proofs and criteria. Their respect was for opinions and not names, for the truth and not the speaker. Hence, they did not imitate one another. Their rule, which they followed, was that every responsible person is answerable for the principles of the deen to which his ijtihad, which is the reasoning, has led him. Perhaps that is why they split into so many groups. And then it, it goes on listing the various groups that the Mutazilites have broken into. They relied on the intellect to establish their articles of faith, finding support for their positions in the Quran, they did not have much knowledge of hadith because they did not use them for doctrine or evidence. So this last group said, hey, look, we're going to assess the information, use our reasoning, our intellect, and try to come to the correct understanding. And naturally, as stated, this is going to come to varying opinions. So these are the three models that people traditionally uh, uh, fall through. One is following that of tradition and history. One is following that of a leader. And the third one is using your intellect, your reason. Again, the purpose of this episode is not for me to argue which position, even though anyone who's listened to the material I produce, it's probably obvious to them. But it's to look at that bigger picture. 
The fact that God created these verses, these words, that are allegorical, they're figurative, they're multi-meaning, and the question is why? From my perspective, the answer to why God structured the Quran in such a way can be seen in the verse itself. So let's read it one more time. He sent down to you this scripture containing straightforward verses which constitute the essence of the scripture as well as multiple meaning or allegorical verses. So God is giving us the framework again of the Quran, that the foundation of it is straightforward, it's easy to understand, and then there's multiple meaning allegorical verses. And it gives us the, the reasoning in the next sentence. It says, those who harbor doubts in their hearts will pursue the multiple meaning verses to create confusion and to extricate a certain meaning. And when I dig into the Arabic, what I, what I extract from this is that these people who harbor doubts, what they're aiming to do is to create fitna. They want to create division, trials. You either believe it this way or you're out of the fold of uh, the religion. And they want to push their interpretation at the expense of causing division and sectarianism. Now, the Quran warns us that if we form into sects, the second we do that, we're actually falling into idol worship, the one unforgivable sin. In chapter 30, verse 30 through verse 32, it reads, Therefore, you shall devote yourself to the religion of strict monotheism. This is Milat Ibrahim Hanif. And it continues, such is the natural instinct, the fitra, placed into the people by God. Such creation of God will never change. This is the perfect religion, but most people do not know. So God is saying that in this verse, every human being has this innate understanding of the worship of God alone. And it continues in 3031, says, You shall submit to him, reverence him, and observe the contact prayer salat. And whatever you do, do not ever fall into idol worship. Like those who divide their religion into sects, each party rejoicing with what they have. Now, what's fascinating is this word for sect used in chapter 30, verse 32, is Shia. So God is telling us, do not break into sects, that if we do this, that we would be committing idol worship. Now, the Quran tells us that not only are we each born with this fitra, this innate quality to want to worship God alone, uh, it tells us that the majority of the Quran, the foundation of it, is straightforward. It's easy to understand. And this is very clear. When you read the Quran, we see this encompass in the first chapter of the Quran, the Fatiha. It says, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful. Right? This is the only numbered Bismillah in the Quran. And it's introducing us to who God is, that he's the most gracious, the most merciful. Praise be to God, Lord of the universe, most gracious, most merciful. Master of the day of judgment, you alone we worship, you alone we ask for help. Guide us in the right path, the path of those whom you've blessed, not of those who deserve wrath, nor of the strayers. This is the foundation of the Quran, and it's actually the same word, um, as used in chapter 3, verse 7, where it says that the majority of the Quran is straightforward, is mukkam. And you can distill this down to one single verse that occurs twice in the Quran. It says, surely, this is chapter 2, verse 62 and 569, it says, surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who, one, believes in God, two, believes in the last day, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. This is the essence, the foundation of this book, this Quran. 
and any understanding we have should align with this. Now, the allegorical and multi-meaning verses in the Quran are part of God's design as a test for us to see if we become divisive regarding the interpretation we choose to uphold. Again, in this podcast, I'm not interested in giving you my understanding regarding the correct meaning of these multi-meaning verses. I only want to highlight that this is a facet of the Quran and the reason that it's designed this way, it's as a test for the human being. Are we going to pursue these multi-meaning verses to extricate certain meanings in order to cause division and disunity among the believers? If we do, it doesn't matter if we even have the right understanding because the second we do it, we're actually breaking God's commandment. In chapter 6, verse 52, it reads, And do not dismiss those who implored their Lord day and night, devoting themselves to Him alone. You are not responsible for their reckoning, nor are they responsible for your reckoning. If you dismiss them, you will be a transgressor. So God is giving us the limits of our religion. God is telling us, anyone, if they're Jewish, Christian, Zoroastrian, it doesn't matter. If they believe in God, believe in the hereafter, lead a righteous life according to what's decreed, then we have to treat them as brethren in faith. And God is telling us in this verse, not to dismiss those who implore their Lord day and night, that if we do this, we will be a transgressor. Now, there's another verse in 494. The context is war, but the lesson is universal. It says, O you who believe, if you strike in the cause of God, you shall be absolutely sure. Do not say to one who offers you peace, you're not a believer, seeking the spoils of this world, for God possesses infinite spoils. Remember that you used to be like them, and God blessed you. Therefore, you shall be absolutely sure before you strike. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. From this verse, I extract, and this is from other verses, chapter 60, verse 8 and 9, that, look, there are times when you can deem someone a disbeliever, a quote-unquote enemy combatant, but we don't use this willy-nilly. God is telling us we used to be like them, right? That we can't basically be labeling people, uh, dismissing people uh, without merit. We have to take this very seriously because if we use this as a bludgeon to cause division, to, uh, to excommunicate people from the religion unjustifiably, we could be falling into idol worship. In chapter 25, verse 63, it says, The worshipers of the most gracious are those who tread the earth gently, and when the ignorant speak to them, they only utter peace. You know, my takeaway from this is someone comes to you, they have a weird understanding regarding some aspect of the religion, some understanding from the verse of the Quran. You know, we shouldn't become hostile, right? We should treat them with peace, with kindness, you know, God willing, share our understanding and uh, do it in the best possible manner. You know, some people interpret this to mean that we're not allowed to debate. Oh, absolutely, we can debate, but we have to do it in the best possible manner. In chapter 16, verse 125, it says, You shall invite to the path of your Lord with wisdom and kind enlightenment and debate with them in the best possible manner. Your Lord knows best who has strayed from his path and he knows best who are the guided ones. So God in this verse is advocating that we treat each other with kindness, that we uh, use wisdom and kind enlightenment to invite to God's path and that when we debate, we debate in the best possible manner. And it continues in 16.126 says, And if you punish, you shall inflict an equivalent punishment, tit for tat. 
But if you resort to patience instead of revenge, it would be better for the patient ones. You shall resort to patience, and your patience is attainable only with God's help. Do not grieve over them and do not be annoyed by their schemes. God is the one who designated this religion for us. God is the one who designated this law book for us. God is the one who's telling us that within his book, there are some verses, some words that are allegorical, they're figurative, they're multi-meaning. And he's telling us, do not go and cause division over these differences of understanding that we can debate in the best possible manner. We can invite with kindness and enlightenment. And if someone chooses to still go down their path, we say peace to you. We don't get upset. We don't get angry. In 41, uh, verses 33 through 36 says, Who can utter better words than one who invites to God, works righteousness, and says, I am one of the submitters? Not equal is the good response and the bad response. You shall resort to the nicest possible response. Thus, the one who used to be your enemy may become your best friend. None can attain this except those who steadfastly persevere. None can attain this except those who are extremely fortunate. And then it gives us this warning because he knows, God knows, this is the hardest time when someone uh, says something nasty to you, you want to respond in kind. It says, when the devil whispers an idea to you, you shall seek refuge in God. He is the here, the omniscient. Because it's at those moments, the devil's going to come and whisper to you to, to tell you to curse this person, condemn this person. And we have to fight those urges. We have to draw closer to God. And I'm going to end with one last verse. This is chapter 10, verse 19. It says, the people used to be one congregation. Then they disputed. If it were not for a predetermined word from your Lord, they would have been judged immediately regarding their disputes. So to summarize, from this we see that it's part of God's design that he placed things in the Quran that can be interpreted multiple ways. And my understanding regarding the reason for this is to test our reaction to this design of the Quran. So our reaction is the real action we have to be conscientious of. God knows there's verses that can be interpreted in multiple ways. He's done all this deliberately. The reason he did this was to test our reaction when we come across someone who has a difference of understanding than us. When we have an understanding that we believe so firmly, are we going to go and attack those who defer with us? Or are we going to refer back to the verses of God and not exceed his limits? That's the real test. And if we fail and we become tyrannical regarding our understanding, then it doesn't matter even if you have the right understanding. You failed the bigger test. That God says that if you dismiss, that you will be a transgressor and you can guarantee that if any of us are transgressors, if any of us fall into uh, secretarianism, then we are committing the unforgivable sin because God equates this to idol worship. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, please join us on our Discord server. We have a lively discussions every day, Quran studies, meditation, uh, hangouts, you name it. Um, you can find the invite to the server link below. Uh, if you want to follow the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want to get notes from today's discussion, as far as other uh, blog posts, you can go to QuranTalkBlog.com. And you can find notes from today's discussion, as well as numerous other articles on various topics. And until next time, peace and God bless.